This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique rating style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. We also welcome our returning celebrity guest scorer, host of the Best Picture cast, and our most recent member of the Five Timers Club with his newly minted hat, Kieran B. Yes, yes. Ah, it's good to be back. A rousing applause when you have a hat. Yeah, no, I'm. Uh, I heard, I'm told there's two bosses in this town, and I'm uh, riding in on my mule to to see what we can do about that. Now, are you the Reds or the Whites? Well, you two are the two bosses, and I'm on the mule. Oh, mm. okay. Now. Are we uh, supposed to apologize to your mule? <laughs> well, we'll see. He's, he's My personal mule isn't easily offended, so we'll see. All right. No, it's uh, happy to be here, guys. Brand new year. Last time I was here, it was uh, 2023, and we've had a, uh, a calendar turnover here. So this is uh, starting things off in 2024 and doing it with a little Clint. So I'm happy, uh, happy to be a part of it. Well, certainly. I mean... The last time you were on was for a Western. You're the first guest of this season, and it's for a Western. Um, absolutely, and we've—I think the one before that was a was a Clint. Uh, with, that is correct, with Grant Torino. So good. Everything's tying together here, and and today, um, th- this is a this is a super intriguing one here, and I feel like my most uh, pressure. This is the probably the the biggest capital I important one here, and should be a fascinating rubric today because there's a lot of a lot of different angles on this one. I think that's pressure you're putting on yourself because certainly neither of us are stressing this one out but given the importance that mr eastwood plays for you boy uh yeah you better not let him down (laughs) we shall see we shall see tonight for our 197th episode we discuss the first film of the alleged dollars trilogy from 1964 directed and written by sergio leone with adriano bolzoni Mark Lowell, and Victor Andres Catena. Music by Ennio Morricone, starring Clint Eastwood as Joe, or, if you prefer, the man with no name, despite having a name. Marianne Cook as Marisol. Jean Maria Volante as Ramon Rojo. W. Luxi as Sheriff John Baxter. Sieghart Rupp as Esteban Rojo. Joe Edgar as Pipero. Antonio Prieto as Don Miguel Rojo, Pepe Calvo as Selvanito, Margarita Lozano as Consuelo Baxter, Daniel Martin as Julio, Benny Reeves as Rubio, Mario Brega as Chico, Bruno Carotenudo as Antonio Baxter, and Aldo Sambrelli as Manolo. And Chef Boyardee as Spaghettio. <laughs> I'm keeping it in. Uh, the head shake was, was perfect. It's an audio medium, but the head shake was perfect. Recognition for this movie, A Fistful of Dollars, was released on September 12, 1964 in Italy. 
It was not well promoted at the time due to its genre and Leone being a relatively unknown director even in his home country. However, despite the initial negative reviews from Italian critics, at a grassroots level, its popularity spread, and over the film's theatrical release, it grossed 2.7 billion lira. Now, before you think that that's a huge number, that's only equated to $4.375 million in U.S. dollars. More than any other Italian film up to that point. So at least it had that going for it. Most critics dismissed the film at the time either during its initial Italian release or its later release in 1967 in the U.S. Nevertheless, the retrospective reception of A Fistful of Dollars has been much more positive, noting it as a hugely influential film in regards to the rejuvenation of the Western genre. Rotten Tomatoes currently listed as eighth on their list of greatest Westerns, and Quentin Tarantino, in a press release for the 50th anniversary celebration, described the film as the greatest achievement in the history of cinema. High praise. The film is not without controversy, as it was effectively an unofficial and unlicensed remake of Akira Kurosawa's 1961 film Yojimbo, written by Kurosawa and Ryuzo Kikushima. Kurosawa insisted that Leone had made a fine movie, but it was my movie. This led to a lawsuit from Toho, Yojimbo's production company. Leone ignored the resulting lawsuit, but eventually settled out of court, reportedly for 15% of the worldwide receipts of A Fistful of Dollars and over $100,000 in total. Leone has disputed this origin for the film, citing Carlo Goldini's Servant of Two Masters, which has the basic premise of the protagonist playing two camps against each other. Leone asserted that this rooted the origination of Fistful slash Yojimbo in European and specifically Italian culture. The Servant of Two Masters plot can also be seen in Dashiell Hammett's detective novel Red Harvest. Leone himself believed that Red Harvest had influenced Yojimbo. Quote, Kurosawa's Yojimbo was inspired by an American novel of the series noir, so I was really taking the story back home again. A Fistful of Dollars currently holds a 98% among critics on a Rotten Tomatoes, a 65 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So as we start every week, Dad, what is your relationship to this movie? <laughs> this is one of these, again, going back to the 70s when you would have the movie of the week uh, that would be on one night. And this was always the three... Dollars trilogy movies would be on periodically. And whenever they were on, my dad would be sitting there watching them. And so if I didn't, if I wanted to watch television at that time, you only had one television in the house. Usually you uh, watched it. You only had three networks. So you only had one of three options. And so my dad always watched it. So I saw these movies probably three or four times by the time I was a teenager. You couldn't just stream Netflix on your phone? Yeah, no, that's right. I know it's an alien culture to most. I'll have to admit, I think I might have seen this only one time, and it was probably in middle school, so I don't remember almost anything, so it was like watching it for the first time. Usually when I pull out a Dollars Trilogy movie, it's been GBU. Yeah, for me, I actually saw this one. Well, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, we did a, our top ten lists over at Best Picture Cast. That that made my list, and you know, so mo so most of my relationship is with that movie. I saw this one, Fistful of Dollars, for the first time during uh, 2020, 
2020 life, you know, like, let me catch up on this. We got some time. And I actually saw this on the big screen last month. Uh, the theater by me, I'm blessed to have a uh, an amazing independent theater by me that plays classics, actually going to go see Hitchcock's 39 Steps tomorrow. But yeah, so they played the Dollars Trilogy in December. Now, I did not get to uh, for a few dollars more. So I went to one and three, three days in a row of, of the man with no name is, is a little much. I had to have a day off in between. And I had only seen it in 2020. But even then, three years later, it was kind of like seeing it for the first time. Uh, so I don't know if this mo- maybe this this movie has that sort of effect, but you know it. it uh, I revisit and obviously revisited again this week, so this was my third time seeing it. Yes, I can also appreciate that. I too watched this one, watched the full version of A Few Dollars More, watched half of GBU, and got in about half of Yojimbo just in case, so that I could do the real novelty comparisons when we get to that one. Because unlike. Most times when classicness is our toughest category, I think novelty will be the toughest category to score this time. Totally agree. Totally agree. I have never seen Yojimbo, so I can kind of only imagine. I saw some of the some of the shot by shot comparisons on YouTube, but I've never seen the full film. Like I said, I only got to half of it, but I think it is actually a very different movie. Okay. Different tone, different sensibility. But we can get into that a little later. So I'll tease that now, but uh, I'll have some more thorough comments on it later. It's not like Gus Van Zandt's Psycho, shot for shot? (laughs) No. With the exception that Vince Vaughn and Anthony Perkins are vastly different actors. So what is the movie about? There's a lot of of greed in this movie. It's obviously in the title, pretty much. Uh, But there's there's a bit of... um, uh, you know, war hungry wrath in there too, where you have two sides fixed on conquering and could could live in peace in their areas, but their desire for more and more uh, allows leaves them vulnerable for the outsider to come in and and uh, test their weaknesses and test their wit. So uh, to me, it's a little there's a little bit of Tower of Babel going on here. It's funny that you mentioned that because I also went Old Testament on this. Mm. Think of the amount of commandments that are broken in this particular movie. <laughs> Thou shalt not kill, lie, steal, have other gods, specifically money, covet thy neighbor's wife, or commit adultery. I think we crossed the Rubicon of at least seven there. And Are they uh, honoring their, their father in there too? As the, the brothers are kind of defying the father a little bit, right? Sure, I'll take it. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, is there a Saturday somewhere in, in the course of this? So we disrespected the, the Sabbath day? Other than that, I mean, they're, they're probably golden. There's some grave digging. That's got to be that's gotta be a commandment. So if there's a bunch of locusts that come out of nowhere at the end of the film, we know why. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I won't make that joke. Why not? You're doing every other joke. <laughs> nah. He's still riding high from Chef Boyardee right now. That was... Uh... If I just start cracking up in the middle of this out of nowhere, it's because I'm still thinking about that joke. <laughs> Dad, do you want to give yours? You want to weigh in? Or... Uh, sure. Okay. What the movie is about is when I was a kid, we had been out West. And so I kind of got into Western history and stuff. And they used to sell these old West magazines with stories of, of uh, gunfighters and cowboys and all these heroes, you know, they glorified them. 
but they were a bunch of, you know, cutthroats. They basically were just trying to either trying to be greedy to grab as much money as they could. Or I think in his case, I think he just enjoyed the intellectual sparring that it took to just screw with all these people. And I, I think it was almost a sadistic quality to it. And so I think that's what it is. I think it just reduces somebody down to the point where there's a certain amount of money involved. But I think it's more of almost a sadistic quality of just seeing how bad he can screw with everybody. Yeah, very, very Bugs Bunny of him, you know. I mean, I really had a hard time digging beneath the surface layer on the movie as to what it's really about, because it, it does seem very surface level. The revolving action in the plot is what the movie's really about. I don't know if it has to be more. Given how most of the Leone movies have played out, at least from as, as I've continued to watch them, and I do intend to finally, it's been on my short list for a very long time, but get to Once Upon a Time in the West, I think they became deeper movies with the progression of each film. But the first two, I thought that they were trying to do so much with so little. And especially because this one by far, you could tell has the smallest budget. They don't really change a lot of scenery. They're using the same locations and the same sets over and over and over again. Nobody's really doing any costume changing or anything major. There's no basic makeup besides the blood spatters, which to borrow a phrase from uh, a certain host of another community podcast of ours, looks very finger painty. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But otherwise, it, it's kind of a recreation. They didn't have a lot going for the script, and they borrowed from it, and that's why it's only 98 minutes. I mean, it's not a very long movie. The other ones increasingly get longer. Even a few dollars more, I think, is just over two hours. GBU is two hours, 40 minutes, if I remember right. And I think Once Upon a Time in the West is about as long as well. So I think Leone probably would have had more to say. The original Geo Jimbo is uh, 110 minutes, so it's got an additional 12 minutes. And you can see where there's some definite scenes cut out and that where they change whole storylines. Characters are switched and flipped, and they, they do a lot of retinkering with the idea, but the premise stays the same. I just don't know if there's a whole lot deeper to this one. This one was just supposed to be, in my mind, entertaining, and it is. This one also looks the most like Europe for me uh, as compared to the other two. There's a lot of the structures and, and whatnot. And forgive me, I did they film these in Italy? I know they had a lot of Italian actors in them, and that's why they're the spaghetti westerns. But I thought these were filmed in Spain. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I know I know. Good the Bad was was Spain. I looked it up. There were parts that were filmed in Spain. There were parts that were filmed in Germany. There were parts filmed in Italy. And there were actually parts filmed in the United States. Hmm. The primary filming was done in Spain because there's portions of Spain that are arid. Now, regardless of the depth of the movie or not, we have four, I would say, top 25 Westerns within the span of about five years from the same director. And he doesn't really do anything major outside of those four films. He has another subsequent one. And I believe uh, 71 
He eventually makes his way to America and does like one more film, but that's pretty much it. So his contributions are primarily in this genre. And yet I would argue he has not only a reinvigoration or a reinspiration of the genre itself after the Western had kind of been overplayed or overdone in America, particularly from the white hat versus black hat, which even Clint commented that one of the major differences he was looking for in playing something else was once he got off of TV, got off of rawhide, he wanted to do less good hat versus bad hat type of acting and do something that was much more layered. These are obvious anti-hero Westerns, but there are other tricks of the trade that I would say transcend genre, given the filmmakers that clearly have influence or at least have said they took influence from these set of movies. So what is it about them exactly that re-inspired not only the genre, but helps transcend beyond it? It, it you know that now there were sp spaghetti westerns before this, but they were not commonly accessed. It wasn't like it was that was a thing that people do. I mean, they were done, but this is what popularized it and kind of opened the door for that to be a fixed thing within the within the industry. It also made Clint a star. You know, I mean, this was his first starring role, and he is kind of the next John Wayne. You know, or the or the rival to the role as the iconic cowboy and reluctantly getting the, the baton passed to him there. So I, I think it is a little bit of that. Plus what, you know, what we were mentioning off mic with the, you know, blood bludgeoning of the genre and it needing to be recreated. It is also a moment in time. I don't know that Sergio, Sergio Leone and Eastwood were necessarily looking to change the course of cinema as they were putting this particular film together, even if that's what they they more or less did. Does anybody really set out and when they say they're going to change a genre or history, does that actually come to pass? It's usually people who do it accidentally by just putting their own spin on things, something that they like or that their taste is a little bit different or they combine things that weren't previously thought to be able to be combined or that nobody had thought of before. I think one of the biggest incorporations and one of the things that stuck out to me was this morning as I was finishing a few dollars more, just the score was going. And my mother walks out to get coffee, turns from two rooms away and says, have you really gotten into Westerns again lately? And I'm like, okay, you've recognized at least multiple scores that Morricone did and that they're in a specific subset of a genre. So there has to be some like connective fiber between the scores and between obviously Eastwood, the look of the movies, the extreme close-ups, the, the tension between certain scenes. And yes, there are the obvious cliches of the gunfighter and then testing somebody else and uh, getting into some sort of duel at the end of his movies that happens in just about every one of these. I mean, the, those extreme close-ups for particular tension, you can see that in a lot of movies. I've seen that in Scorsese movies. I've seen that in Tarantino movies. I've seen that in Peckinpah movies. Obviously, you see it in Clint's movies. Not The Rookie, but other movies, better movies. <laughs> well, all right. Let's, let's put it this way. Okay, each generation has a tone. Coming out of World War II, the tone was that those who came back survived. 
and they threw caution to the wind because they were going to live. They saw death. They survived death. And they were just interested in the hedonistic aspect of it, which led to the whole sexual revolution and the playboy clubs and all that. The next generation started out in Vietnam and realized that so much of what was being told to them by their parents was wrong, that when films would come out and they were counterculture, they were against the norm. They spoke to that generation. And that's what made them so iconic and what made them so important in the genre. It was whenever you put a film out in a specific area, a genre, and it spoke to that generational tone, then that became an iconic moment for film. So I'll just combine two of the things that both of you have mentioned so far and and steer us in a a slightly different direction. But if redefining a genre is a moment in time, put us in that moment in time, Dad. You're usually the more historically inclined of any of us on, on this particular show. I mean, the Western is somewhat overkilled in America to the point that we're having to shift these into completely other countries. But at the same point, we have an influence of European directors. This is about the same time that we get Fellini and Godard and the French new wave around this time. What is it exactly that we get out of this time period that makes these historic? So let's go back a second, which was that in the 1950s, There were a lot of Westerns being done because they were popular. The studios, though, were suffering because television had eaten into people going out to the theaters on a regular basis. So the theater, so the studios were looking for a way to make money. And so they would have all these elaborate sets that they had designed for films that were just sitting on the back lots being vacant. And they redefined television, which up until about the late 50s had been live television within a studio in New York, sometimes Los Angeles, the studios came up with this idea of recording films. They had all this stock, so they did a ton of Westerns, and they developed the idea of commercials instead of a company sponsoring an entire show. And so they could sell increments and do it filmed. Well, you ended up with, I think there was 28 westerns on in 1960 it just beat the horse not only dead but to a pulp and you know it died out so by the mid 60s when people are starting to have questions about vietnam i mean the the kennedy assassination kind of threw everybody into convulsions there's all these turmoils the rise of the civil rights movement all this going on And so they were looking for outlets. And so everything changed. Before this, what was the popular war film? It was The Dirty Dozen, which were 12 convicts who become heroes. Except The Dirty Dozen comes out after this movie. Uh, It's in the same, same, it's 67. So it's in the same era. But I mean, it leads to a whole bunch of these. From this, Clint goes a couple of years later Three, I believe, is when Kelly's Heroes came out. Uh, again, uh, it's it's all about the counterculture. It's everybody being upset and uh, a flip 
the hero is not the hero. The villain is the hero and rubs against the green and becomes the ultimate success uh, in the film. And that's what these films are more or less about. It's speaking to a frustrated generation that is experiencing all kinds of chaos and they're rooting for someone to succeed who should not succeed. And that's what speaks to them because of the circumstances and events going on at that time. We're also getting inundated with musicals at this time, right? In in the mid sixties. Yeah. One you just covered. Yeah. My fair lady, right, right there smack in the middle of it. But you know, it's year after year, it's Mary Poppins, it's my fair lady, sound of music and so on and so forth. One of the things that listening to your back catalog that, I guess I've realized looking through it, but you can only do it if you're looking at the full list of best picture winners is that certain eras can be defined by what wins. So right about, I would say 57 through about 68, it's primarily the musicals, the stage adaptations and the epics that are the big Hollywood favorites. This And yes, the French new wave, the Italian or European influences certainly have a carryover once you get to one you haven't covered yet, but a Midnight Cowboy, French Connection. By the time we get to The Godfather, it's a confluence of the studio films being inundated by some of those anti-hero themes and that there's an audience ready for those types of things. The Sting is somewhat in that capacity of a charlatan being your overall <laughs> hero or your good guy. Uh, because they're fighting against even worse people than they are. Yeah, you know, didn't that win type the taxi driver, you know. Yeah. There too. So, and I think that defines about uh, 69 through 81. And then eight, the 80s are all about period biopics pieces. or yeah. period piece type stuff. And that carries up through, I would say, probably the English patient, maybe even Titanic, before you start to get a, a new crop of them and I'm not really sure how to define about uh, 1999 through I would say almost up to probably the Hurt Locker that that 10 years but I think each subsequent decade or 15 years maybe a, a generational ploy has a connective tissue there are certain films that will always produce well and then once that era is over you rarely see certain best pictures like that pop back up again yeah, now or now we're back into more of the smaller independent films. Mm-hmm. You know, the the interpersonal stories and Right. But even then I think those are starting to go by the wayside already again. Yes. Like we had a transitional film in my mind last year with Everything Everywhere All at Once. It was a small budget studio, but that made a large imprint at the box office doing something that was I would say somewhat visionary, at least trying to do things. And whether your mileage varies on dildos and hot dog fingers and all the other (laughs) random stuff in that movie, I know you're not a particular fan and neither is my dad, but it is somewhat of a transition between the Asian influence that you can already see starting to leak through in like Parasite to carrying forward now where it looks like the odds on favorite is Oppenheimer, where we're getting, I would say, the epic again. It's mm. an epic biopic, but it's still an epic. Yeah, and Flowers Killers of Flower Moon right there with it too. Another, you know, another epic style film. It's not just film, it's music too, because we have different genres 
and different time frames have different style. The one thing that's transcended more multiple generations has actually been two has been the traditional rock and roll. It lasted from the mid fifties until the early nineties. And it's kind of, you know, it still exists, but it's not like we're producing huge rock and roll bands anymore. They're pop music at this point in time. No. Yeah. It's, it's all about nostalgia now. I mean, that's why you can see something like, uh, like last summer or two summers ago, something like Kate Smith, you know, from Stranger Things, a song from the 80s that's just was in somebody's closet somewhere that someone dusted off and threw into a popular TV show, goes number one on the Billboard charts. And we're watching it now with Saltburn, a Murder on the Dance Floor. That song plays at the bars every weekend now. Just beca- And that's a, that's, a, that's a 20-year-old song. That's it's a British song. They dust it off, throw it in there. Now it's a pop culture sensation. So people are, are we're, we're looking backward to look forward in the music industry right now. And I wonder if maybe that's, what is going to start defining what's going on um, in the movie industry too, because you see it and you're starting to see it leak through. Because it started really the first time I remember that was sleepless in Seattle where the soundtrack took all the old songs. I mean, they're playing uh, songs from uh, Louis Armstrong and Nat King Cole and, and it really kind of brought them all back and made them popular. Then we had some more in good morning Vietnam. And so the soundtracks did that. I think you're going to start seeing the potential of filmmakers going back and pulling concepts or ideas over the last 40 years of film and doing modern films, but in a tradition. I think that at some point here, you're going to find somebody who's going to try to emulate Hitchcock, who's going to try to emulate Billy Wilder, and is going to create new genre within the more modern time frame and try to emulate those older directors and films. And, and Bon Joon-ho may have started that domino. We've already compared multiple modern filmmakers to the newer version of Hitchcock, whether that's Jordan Peele or Emerald Fennell or how many other people. Or Bon Joon-ho. Sure. I will push back a little bit on the pop song aspect of it, though. I think... Scorsese starts doing it in the 70s, but it doesn't really catch on until I would say the big chill does that to great effect where the soundtrack's really good. When Harry Met Sally and Good Morning Vietnam, I think were both 88, 89, and then Goodfellas does it to great effect in 1990 as well before we even get to Sleepless in Seattle. But I still think that's somewhat of a time where we got more pop-influenced soundtracks as opposed to the the orchestra ones and i do think that with certain modern directors we're getting a callback to i would say the classic 50s 60s orchestra scores being utilized again even for smaller films because it's more accessible than it's probably ever been to get a few just very decent pieces like if you got a string quartet together for a certain point in a movie if you had something that needed to be subtle and undersold, but heavily emotional, you could do string instruments and make it work comparatively to what you used to do. Not everything is going to have those things. I mean, it's not like your run-of-the-mill Cary Grant film every three or four months that's going to be overly sappy with some heavy dramatic orchestra music, but we're still getting a lot more influence than we used to. Yeah, and I mean, if we're talking early 90s, I mean, back then the soundtracks were 
I mean, though that was a thing. That was a part of the culture. You'd have number one songs all the time, whether it was from the Disney films. I mean, The Bodyguard was one of the top selling albums of all time, you know, which is crazy for that to be a soundtrack would sell like that. You know, but that doesn't happen anymore. Or Costner's uh, Robin Hood mm-hmm. and uh, Pulp yeah, Fiction Brian soundtrack Adams, right? was like huge at the yep. time. So, Batman yeah, Forever the- with Seal. And- <laughs> oh, God. Huh. You had to drop a you had to drop a Schumacher reference in here. <laughs> R.I.P. Uh, I mean, it was bad enough I did a Batman and Robin episode already. Hey, I'm a Batman. <laughs> I'm a Batman Forever defender here. So, oh, that's the worst one. No, come on. Let's not go there. Let's not go there. All right, but I'm going to ask you this one directly. I came up with this question just for you, our resident Dick with hat. Okay. Who is more important to the history of the Western in film, Leone or Eastwood? <sighs> to me, as a Packers fan, this is like asking who's more important, Lambo or Lombardi? Yeah, uh, man, I, I saw this question and instantly started chasing my tail. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to defer to Tarantino here on this. And he spoke in front of a crowd at Cannes uh, in 2014. Uh, before a, a viewing of this film, it's available on YouTube. You can you can check it out. And he more or less said, you know, he 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 basically called Leone one of the most important filmmakers, and this one of the most important films uh, within the genre. But he said that he couldn't have done it without two important people, and Eastwood being one, and that's the one he focused on. But Ennio Marconi as well. You know, so I do think there is a bit of a trinity there with the three of them. One of the things that he highlighted about Eastwood is, is that leading up to this point, the, the lead in these Westerns were not sexy. You know, it was not, uh, it was not a, a guy on a horse that the women wanted to tackle and get in his pants. It was a, a tough and rugged uh, hero who's going to wrestle the, the bad guy and win the day. The John Wayne with an eye patch, you know, and Eastwood changed that image. To now we have a, you know, we have a cool star in there. Mix that with the soundtrack, which is so essential to this film, to the point where he had the soundtrack before he had the film and he made the film along with the music. So I I kind of think the three of them, I'm going to, you know, give the non-answer is that the three of them as a union are the most essential part of this genre. And any one of them without the other doesn't you know the team doesn't quite ascend to the annals of of the of the western cooperstown if you will i agree it's one of the most important film collaborations that we've probably ever had and it's three parts of a whole but what i'm hearing from your explanation and by punting and i knew i was going to force you into this is that essentially when two of them are not present that means Unforgiven is not a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing some some weird okay. uh, tautology going on here. I don't know that I can right. you're, check the man you're, on you're that. a show with a potential law student and a lawyer. You didn't think I was going to walk you into one of these? Well, one of is, these well is, is Unforgiven as impactful without the Dollars trilogy? It's probably well, not. But that's, but that's what I'm saying is, is his contributions overall to the history of the Western. Because he goes on and does several other Westerns. He does the more modern stuff. Leone is pretty well contained to these. And for the most part, he only has one major contribution without Clint. But by the same token, does Clint ever get anywhere he 
gets without Leone. So it's kind of a chicken and an egg situation. Is he able to ride that wave with it? It is. It is. Success is based upon crossing rays at a single point. It's where different people come together and together they produce. Somebody asked me, you know, well, Belichick's resignation proves that he couldn't do it without Brady. I said, Brady did it one time without Belichick, and he had to have a team loaded with talent to do it. And then they just got there. So don't give me that. It's it's not just it's uh, Scott Paoli, the guy who was doing all the drafting in the uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. It's Belichick. It's Brady. They all came to a point and were able to win a bunch of championships in this particular point. All three of them came together and made these films, which became iconic. Ultimately, the winner is Eastwood because he has had the longer career And he's still going. And you can look at most of his films that are not Westerns and say they really are Westerns. Gran Torino is a Western. It's one guy against the odds trying to reach out. It's a Western set in Detroit. Yeah. Now, how exactly is J. Edgar a Western? (laughs) Let's not bring up J. Edgar. We were having such a good time. (laughs) I said a lot of his I'm not saying they all were. Okay. Mm. So now we're we're putting qualifiers on it. Okay. I I didn't qualify. I qualified to begin with. You need to listen, oh student counselor. Nate, can we get a, a playback on the transcript there? You don't have the transcript? What you're gonna throw the red flag? <laughs> what the fuck, Nate? Really? This is what you do when you borrow interns from the circuit verse. <laughs> all right. Well, Dad, are you ready to dig in more to this? Is the rookie a Western? (laughs) God. Oh, God. I'm simultaneously looking forward to and not looking forward to discussing that film. My guy, Tommy DeVito. All right. In A Fistful of Dollars, director Sergio Leone crafts a gritty and intense Western that stands as a testament to the power of Clint Eastwood's iconic presence. Set in a desolate border town, torn apart by rival gangs, Eastwood's mysterious stranger arrives with a deadly agenda. The film unfolds with a masterful blend of tension, stoic coolness, and explosive gunplay. Leone's signature style, marked by sweeping landscapes and extreme close-ups, heightens the film's raw and atmospheric quality. As the stranger navigates a world where alliances are fleeting and betrayal is inevitable, A Fistful of Dollars emerges as a genre-defining classic that elevates the spaghetti western to an art form. Eastwood's portrayal of the enigmatic, anti-hero, and Leonie's masterful direction create a cinematic experience that remains a cornerstone in the history of western cinema. Thank you. Did you know? Originally, Sergio Leone intended Henry Fonda to play the man with no name. However, the production company could not afford to employ a major Hollywood star. Next, Leone offered Charles Bronson the part. He, too, declined, arguing that the script was bad. Both Fonda and Bronson would later star in Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, from 1968. Other actors who turned down the role were Henry Silva, Rory Calhoun, 
Tony Russell, Steve Reeves, Ty Harden, and James Coburn. Leone then turned his attention to Richard Harrison, an expatriate American actor who had recently starred in the first Italian Western, Duello nel Texas. Harrison, however, had not been impressed with his experience in that film and refused. The producers presented a list of available, lesser-known American actors and asked Harrison for advice. Harrison suggested Eastwood, who he knew could play a cowboy convincingly. Harrison later stated, Maybe my greatest contribution to cinema was not doing a fistful of dollars and recommending Clint for the part. Did you know? Clint Eastwood's contract for Rawhide prohibited him from making movies in the United States while on break from the series. However, the contract did allow him to accept movie assignments in Europe. Did you know? Sergio Leone warmed to Clint Eastwood very quickly and joked that he had only two expressions, with hat and without hat. (laughs) Very disrespectful. (laughs) To be fair, I think the Clint school of acting is, how do I act only with my eyebrows? I don't subscribe to any of this. Did you know? Sergio Leone was so enraptured with Ennio Morricone's score that he would frequently let scenes run longer than they should just so the music could play out fully. And we thank you for that. Did you know? Originally called The Magnificent Stranger, the title wasn't changed to A Fistful of Dollars until almost three days before the movie premiered in theaters. In fact, nobody had bothered to inform Clint Eastwood of the change, and, as a result, Eastwood remained virtually unaware of the positive buzz surrounding the movie until an agent pointed it out to him in a Variety magazine article three weeks later. And with that, we will take our first break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 198th episode, we stay in the year 1964, but instead discuss another Stanley Kubrick classic with Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Written and directed by Stanley Kubrick with Terry Southern and Peter George. Music by Laurie Johnson. Starring Peter Sellers, Sterling Hayden, George C. Scott, and Slim Pickens. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. I gotta tell you, I, I, I love Dr. Strangelove. It might be the only watchable Peter Sellers movie that I like. <laughs> <laughs> Not a being there guy? I've I never seen it, film. so I, I'll... I'll I'll leave that one alone, but I I tried showing it to him. He got about 15 minutes in and was like, no, I can't watch this. When was this like 20 years ago? No, it wasn't that long ago. I don't remember this at all, but okay. Oh yeah. So with our resident guest, you and uh, your crew over there at the BPC, what's going on with your show? Yeah, we uh, starting our we're, have, we're celebrating our our fourth anniversary at uh, the beginning of next month. You know, February first, I think, is around when you guys celebrate yours, right? Yeah, we're at the end of February. I think our official date is the twenty fifth of February. Okay, cool. Yeah, we're we we were on February first, twenty twenties, when we uh, dropped our our first episode, The Departed, if I remember right. Yes, The Departed, and and One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest was one and two. We did like a dual drop to kick things off. But yeah, so it's been four crazy years and we uh, are, are getting ready for our, our, uh, our anniversary episode. And we have uh, three best picture winners coming up before all our Oscar coverage. We're going to have a ton of it. We're going to have a full Oscar episode where we kind of rank all the best picture nominees. We give our favorites in each category. It's always a, a, a fun time for us throughout the year, but three very different movies leading up to it. We just dropped My Fair Lady, speaking of 1964. 
Uh, we just recorded for Hurt Locker. That's going to be our anniversary episode. And then we have Nomadland coming up. So <laughs> I don't think you could come up with three more different Best Picture winners there, but uh, they they kind of uh, they they are going to work for us on the way up to the Oscar coverage. So Gladiator must have gotten pushed back then. Gladiator will be right after the Oscars. That one will come out. That crew is a little more complicated to schedule with, so we have to uh, have to uh, find the right day for the four of us to to get. Out. One guy lives in Brooklyn. One just had a baby. So uh, it's it's finding that right day. That was painful, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, that's it's best picture cast. We have a lot of fun, and we have our our, our next tournament is our comedy movie tournament. We're going to be doing that too, so you can vote on on Twitter X uh, for your favorites there. And the winner will do uh, in a World Cup style tournament. The winner will get its own episode. So the only qualifier there is it's a comedy, and it cannot have been nominated for any Oscars in any categories. Not screenplay, not makeup, not effects, nothing. You should also add does not have Tom Green. <laughs> well if you want to win i wouldn't pick one with tom green i don't know Maybe road, road trips trip. at least trip, in the yeah. in the ballpark yes it's reasonable todd phillips i have not quite gotten to the my fair lady episode yet but i feel fairly confident that uh, the musical lovers over at the bpc did not tear apart one of my father's favorite movies i will say this that Fans of My Fair Lady will enjoy the episode. You will not. It's there. There are certain combination of hosts we could have put together where it could have been real ugly uh, hatchet fest. But uh, no, this is a this is this is one that a, a fan of My Fair Lady will thoroughly enjoy, and it won't disgust the person who doesn't like Fair, My Fair Lady either. So we, I think, we're pretty representative of all those voices. Because if I remember right, one of the first times that we talked to you, you said that was dead last on your best picture power rankings it well, I, I might have said bottom five i might have said bottom five but i will say i came into this with an open mind and an open heart and uh my cold heart might have grown a, a little bit larger that day we'll just put it that way well i'll have to find out how each of my questions was answered since apparently our shadow scooby-doo villain <laughs> or our resident scooby-doo villain has been submitting them under my name even though he could have just sent them from me. Yeah. From the mind of Tom Duncan. Scooby-Doo. I'm waiting for him to start a Globetrotters account and mix into that too. All right. Well, let's circle back to the film. We had stopped off at Best Performance. You know what? Because this is one of your favorite people, I, I have a feeling I know where you're going to go Best Performance, but Karen, I give you the floor. Yeah, well, I left a, I left a little bit of a uh, cryptic path to get here with my uh my my western trinity answer there before and i might surprise you with this well while i do think this is clint's best performance within the trilogy i think this is a director's film it just kind of plays that way it's set up it's very film schooly it's it's very shot oriented i think that sergio leone is the is is the best performer in this one so i went with uh sergio for my for my best performer I will already just telegraph that I have all three legs of the triumvirate. As do I. Nominated for each one of these categories. Does anybody have anything different? I do. Okay. Okay. So we do have a little bit different. I also went Leone in this regard, but it's similar to what I did last week when we did Blood Simple. He was a relatively unknown director. He'd done two smaller movies, but to take his vision on... I wouldn't say for the first time, but to expand upon it, 
I always give a little bit more credit because I think they are more of the ultimate creator than anybody that's necessarily on screen or that they did individual. They are the master of all the sum of the parts. Even if they didn't individually master everything, everything comes under their purview and to a degree it's their baby. So I give him a little bit more credit than anybody else. Thus best performance. I had Leone also three for three. I mean, this is a director's film as far as I'm concerned, blending all of it because you know, Eastwood's giving his lines in English. The other actors are giving their lines, I believe, in all Italian. And so they only had to dub one side or the other of what the lines were. The cinematography, the cuts, the the camera angles, everything about it, it was visually stunning. So I went with Leone. Go ahead and follow up. Best secondary, I have Clint. I really think he did a... a, a Pretty good job overall. I mean, <laughs> most of his lines are said between his teeth. He kind of always talked like, you know, in uh, almost every film is kind of like that. He's a very facially expressive actor. Thomas commenting about the eyebrows. But it's not just that's the squint of his eyes. Or even, and I can't remember which Dirty Harry film it is where he comes out and he's going to shoot, and he's eating a hot dog, and he continues to chew the hot dog. That's the original Dirty Harry. Was it in that one? Okay, because you just watch that, and you're going, he's so uh, so matter-of-fact of pulling out his gun and shooting a suspect in a uh, tense moment. He's just continuing to chew. I mean, just, that's Clint in so much, his facial expression and body language. The Clint School of Acting, you always look like you can't see into the sunlight, whether you're taking out Tuco or you're taking out the Scorpio Killer or you're taking down Gomez Adams in a car theft ring. You know, it's, it's, it's always the same squint. This is such a cinema bully take <laughs> that everyone just hops on. One day I will make the world understand the nuance to Clint Eastwood's acting prowess and that he's a wonderful actor who should have a an Oscar win alongside his Oscar nominations. I can hardly wait until we can start having our little like little things that we can insert in here because I want troll alert, troll alert. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can clip that and just drop it in. He just does stuff like this to set people off. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a popular take too. It's not um it's not like he's 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 going on a wild hot take. To, that's the Adam move. Oh, he he's used to doing it with his mother. <laughs> the part of it is, is I I think I've come around especially now that I've seen the rookie. He's a star, not an actor. I think there are plenty of those in Hollywood. That, that would be where I ultimately come to. I think he's a better director than he is an actor just personally, given the the stuff he's made. I would agree with that. But I think he has so much charisma that he doesn't really feel like he needs to have a lot of depth in his acting. There are a few exceptions. I, I will grant you Unforgiven and Million Dollar Baby are probably the two that probably come most to mind for me, where I think he's a little bit more nuanced. He has a little bit more gravity in what he's doing. But even Gran Torino feels somewhat of a throwback for him that he, he's kind of 
for me, a bit monotone, etc. But that being said, he's also my best secondary because this is an iconic character. He's creating the first inklings of it. Until I'd seen Yojimbo, I would have thought that the cigar was all him and Leone. It's not. Unfortunately, that was uh, Mifune, and he had like a toothpick the whole time. So that it, that even small detail was copied over from Yojimbo, even though I would say they're two different films. But he, he creates a gravitas, a new type of Western iconoclastic hero, and I would say in in doing so kind of creates the modern Western. Yeah, he's he's my secondary as well. And, you know, I probably said this in the Grand Torino episode when I when you uh, I think one of your questions of the day was, is Clint a good actor? I think we might have gone into that a little more depth. But what, his style of acting is the intuitive. My wheels are turning and my mouth isn't, you know, and he does he does a lot of reacting to the actors around him. And there's and there's a lot of mental presence to his characters and it's very nuanced and he doesn't get a lot of credit for it, but he's Clint Eastwood. He doesn't need the credit for it because he is a star and all that. That's you know, that's but it's also kind of like when people say Jack Nicholson's just Jack Nicholson in every movie he's in. Well, that that kind of means something, you know, when you're able to do that, when you're able to take your persona and blend it into whatever script you're it's not like they wrote every role for him, but he makes the role his own. I would have said at one time he was a very intellectual actor until I saw him like lecturing to an empty chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, the person and the actor, well, I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, but I have him as my uh, as my secondary uh, and he's my hero. So <laughs> if you, if you want to undercut Clint in any moment, make other people watch the rookie. That, that's all it's going to take. <laughs> It, it's deserving of its 24 rating on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> oh. Compared to uh, his acting on uh, Two and a Half Men, Charlie Sheen should have. Oh, jeez. Should have won Emmys for Two and a Half Men <laughs> compared to this. He did. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway. So then I have to assume, given that you and I have both gone two for two, that we're married on Mar- Morricone also for Charismatic. Yeah, and I don't know what it what the um back catalog history is of of composers getting getting most charismatic. I thought that was kind of a little bit of a a long shot there for me for this one. So you'll have to fill me in on that. I know I nominated him for GBU when we did that episode. I can't remember for what. I think it might have been for best overall performance because that score is did, so yeah. iconic. And yeah. I think I did the same for John Williams when we did Jaws. There are two people that by far have created iconic scores, but I'll just say he gets my most charismatic because I can't get these stupid scores out of my head. I've been whistling them for four days. Yeah. Yeah. The score in this really makes this movie crackle like a campfire. I mean, it's, it is a character within the movie popping out behind corners and alleyways. Uh, it's really fun score and it adds so much to this film. So yeah, that's, that's my most charismatic. I would love to see someone do a retrospective where they take all three major scores, or for that matter, since I haven't seen Once Upon a Time in the West, maybe four scores, and blends them all together and just reuses bits and pieces and makes them flow from one to the other and back and forth over and over again in like some sort of Morricone symphony. I think that would be impressive as hell, but all three of them, 
borrow similar elements but are distinctive to themselves. I don't know what it is. And they're all catchy and they all create an ambiance or an energy that, especially with the cutting of it, even though there are elongated takes, as we mentioned, that Leone specifically left the camera on for certain things so that it could play out to the entire score. It never felt like the movie was too long when the music was playing. That was always when the energy rose within the film. And so I agree, it, it is a character to itself, but it, it brings more out of the film than you could have probably expected. Again, why I, I don't know if any of these works if you don't have the score with it. Well, I figured the two of you would go that way. So I decided to go a different direction just to be different. I went with Marianne Coke. I just thought her performance as the female, I don't know, the, the love interest, the, I mean, she was kind of the, I don't know what you'd even call her. I mean, she damsel. Yeah, I guess so. Was part of his motivation. I thought she was beautiful. I thought uh, she was hypnotic in the scene she was in. And, uh, I, I liked her performance and I liked the way she was presented in the film. So I thought it was extremely charismatic. I think I read that she did something like 70 films over her career. And it wasn't even that long of a career because she kind of retired when she got middle-aged uh, and married. So she was on high demand in Europe. And I just thought she was beautiful and really gave a real strong charismatic presence when in the scene she was in piercing blue eyes, piercing blue. Oh eyes. yeah. See, personally, I thought the most charismatic, if you don't go with the score for me would have been Jean Maria Volante as the, the heavy, the Ramon part of it, especially because he pops up again in a few dollars more as the heavy in that film. He was the one that really popped out to me, the one that was the more memorable figure. To me, the, the villains in this were kind of were one of my issues with the film. I, I thought there could have been more charisma on both sides uh, and and the, the conflict between the two could have been a little more vibrant. That's kind of like one of my overall complaints. Of this movie is, you know, the brothers, you know, I mean, it sounds it sounds stupid to say the brothers look too alike. But I mean, I feel like there could have been more uh, more distinction to their to their looks. Even the Baxters are, they're not, there's not much character to the Baxters. You know, I, I wanted more out of the villains in this thing. Definitely. I would say the Baxters are underwritten. I don't, I don't think there's really any contemplating that. And that comes up a little bit with my issues in the remaining questions, I would say. But as far as the Rojos, like the leader of the Rojos is not particularly menacing or memorable. The two that stick out for me are Ramon because of his connection with, Marisol and his obviously being the final guy in the final scene. He's supposed to be the truly big, bad heavy. But I think the other one that's a little bit more distinctive to me, not only from the way he looks, but just kind of the, his costume and his, his general demeanor is Esteban. Those are the only two that really stuck out to me. Otherwise everybody else could have just been a guy. Yeah. yeah. You had to do it that way because otherwise you would not have been rooting for Eastwood throughout the film. Consider the Baxters to be basically the red shirts in Star Trek. <laughs> See, I disagree with that just on, on its face, because in GBU, you have the establishment of three distinct archetypes with the good, the bad and the ugly. And you're rooting for the good, 
but you're kind of also rooting for the ugly and the bad at the same time. And they're all menacing. You're just trying to pick out which one you actually want by the end of it. Even though I think your heart's always set on Clint, you're weaving where your allegiances are. And that's why that film works as well as it does. I don't think you have to have throwaway character X in order for this movie to necessarily work, unless you're just saying that we're on such a limited budget, we can't afford decent actors. I think this was made for like $200,000 or less. Yeah. Well, anyway. So let's move to best scene then. I actually added one this morning to the original list I gave you guys, but I have Joe takes on the Baxters, which is the first time that we really see him kind of in action. And I always love those kind of scenes where you get your comeuppance. The guy who's being somewhat bullied comes back around and those guys really didn't know who they were picking on. Then I have the graveyard shootout. I have the trade for Marisol, which I think is a very important scene in the middle of this movie. Then I have Joe freeing Marisol. What I will call roll out the barrel, which is probably one of the more confusing scenes and will make an appearance in my remaining questions. Joe actually escaping, destroying the Baxters, which is them trying to burn their house down, which again, we'll come back up later. And then the final shootout. Did you guys have any to add? I think that's pretty good. Yeah, those are the good. Those are the ones I have nothing else. The one I kind of left out, but I thought about including it is right when he's riding into town and we kind of get that introduction with I can't remember the character's name, Juan de Dios. And then he's never seen again. He plays a much more important role in the Yojimbo part of it or the that movie in particular. Uh, He doesn't really come back up at all in Fistful. So. I kind of left that out for partly that reason is, is he has no comeback at all, but you could take the defining early scene of how you've structured the town. But even that conversation, that dialogue is very expositional. And so I don't know how important it, it truly is compared to the other, I would say much more action heavy scene. So out of these, what do you think is the best scene? Dad, let's start with you. I love the graveyard scene because not only is it the graveyard scene, it's interspliced with other parts of the film of what Eastwood's character is doing at the same time. And to me, it's just well done. I think it's a pivotal moment. And you kind of chuckle about how he was able to be so deceptive and play the two sides off with just two uh, corpses. I don't know if you're going to have a, a bad pick out of the lot that we've nominated here, but I ultimately went for the trade for Marisol just because I think that's the pivotal moment for his, for Eastwood or Joe's character, because you can see some inner turmoil. He wants to react, but he doesn't want to give away his position trying to play the two sides off of each other. I have to uh, imagine in that moment, he's telling himself, I have to help this woman, but I can't do it right now. And so I think that precipitates the following action that obviously gets him into trouble and creates our third act. But to me, this is the pivot point of the entire film is when she shows up and there's that trade and he he feels for her is if he has a heart, it go, goes out to her. I think that's probably the most nuanced acting job that he did in the film. Uh, yeah, so for me, it, uh, my best and my favorite are his uh, initial takedown of the Baxters, the I'm going to need three coffins, and his his showdown with those guys, uh, my mistake four. 
you know, that to me is is a great introduction to this character that we're going to see for three movies and really we're going to see for decades beyond with his other work. I, I think that that's like that's that's the moment for me. It really brings us into the world of this character. I want one that is being my favorite scene as mine as well. Uh, again, coming back to it, I just like when bullies or people that are picking on it you know you can see it coming it's cliche it's telegraphed although i'm sure at this time it wasn't exactly that it hadn't become the cliche but you know they're going to get their comeuppance and you love when it happens so yeah of course it's going to be one of my favorites as far as i would say most indelible because it's a scene that's inexplicable i'm going to have roll out the barrel I'll get back to that with remaining questions, but that that scene's going to bother me. You use that phrase, and all I want to do is have a bratwurst. <laughs> Could probably pick one up on the way home. Indelible for me is uh, that uh, that final scene, man. The the one from Back to the Future Three, the iron under the chest and the aim for the heart. That's just that, that's when I first saw this. I'm like, oh, this is where that's from. Uh, so yeah, that's just the one that sticks with me. And it's, and, so, and anytime, cause this movie is, a, can, can be a little bit of a slog for me, at least for, a, for, you know, a 90 minute movie or an hour and 40 minute movie, whatever it is. I mean, in many ways, I think good, good, the bad and the ugly moves a little quicker than this one does, believe it or not, even though it's like twice the time. The fact that I know that scenes in the end, I can, it always kind of gets me going with this. So that, that's my indelible moment. Mine too. You kind of wondered what was going to happen. I couldn't quite remember how it was since it's been probably been 20 years since I've seen the film of the three. This is, this is the one I've seen less, I think frequently. That's what I remembered the most. So that's why I gave what gave it the most indelible, I guess again, but yeah. It always reminds me of dumb and dumber too. the, well, what, what if he shot you in the head? Well, yeah. What if he shot me in the head? Well, that was a risk we were willing to take. <laughs> Oh, bringing up a, a movie that Dana will never watch. Oh, wow. No, I'll watch it. Honestly, you, you prevented me from watching that movie for 25 years because you hate Jim Carrey, particularly for Ace Ventura. And yet when I finally got around to it, I'm like, this is actually pretty good. I'll, I'll give it a chance because I've seen some films of Jim Carrey that I actually like. Like The Truman Show and Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. But Ace Ventura just set me on a path. I didn't care for him too much when he was on In Living Color. I thought he was too over the top. And then I watched Ace Ventura, and your mother and I got to, we were watching it with you. You must have been about three or four. And when they did the bathroom scene, and he comes out and he goes, Woo, don't go in there. And you're <laughs> just rolling on the floor laughing. Your mother says, I think it's time for you to go to bed, young man, and we to turn this film off. <laughs> Good choice, because it gets a lot dicier from there. Dumb and Dumber, at least he's sharing the screen a lot. It's not just like the Jim Carrey show. He's got a lot of Jeff Daniels in there, too. So oh, it's a fun one. Yeah, I think Jeff Daniels probably makes that movie, to be honest. But, you know, I'm always a Jeff Daniels guy. So it looks like a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, 
or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 182 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. I would also plug that uh, each individual episode has its own page up on our website as well. You can check out any individual scores or any of the following notes for an individual movie on there as well. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, another long list. Peter Crombie, 71 American actor, was in Seinfeld, Seven, and My Dog Skip. Conrad Palomiso, Conrad Palmisano, 75, American Stuntman, Batman Forever, Weekend at Bernie's, <laughs> Rush Hour 2, The Jerk, 21 Jump Street. And yet again, another appearance by Batman Forever on this program. When will it end? And I got to say, uh, Peter Crombie is uh, Crazy Joe Devola from Seinfeld for Seinfeld fans. Got a re- reoccurring character, great character. Tisa Farrow, 72, American actress, Homer, Winter Kills, Fingers, sister of Mia Farrow. April Ferry, 91, American costume designer, Maverick, Big Trouble in Little China, Rome, The Big Chill, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and Game of Thrones. Oscar nominated for Maverick and an Emmy winner for Rome. Alec Musser, 50, American actor, All My Children, and model for Amber Crombie and Fitch. Bill Hayes, 98, American singer, did the ballad of Davy Crockett. Davy, Davy Crockett. And actor, Days of Our Lives. And Joyce Randolph, 99, American actress. She was Trixie Norton in The Honeymooners. Married on the show to uh, Ed Norton, which was Art Carney's character. Unfortunately, I don't really have a whole lot to say on this cast of folks we're recognizing this week. I don't have any real personal connections. Anything from our guest? Just crazy Joe Devola from Seinfeld is a, 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 an awesome character. Dresses up like the clown in the one episode. And I think he dates Elaine and he's just uh, always lurking in the background of, around Jerry. So uh, really well per- portrayed now. Kind of one of the more memorable bit characters in, in that one. I personally have a strong history towards or strong feeling towards old television. I used to watch black and white television on public TV on Saturdays instead of uh, cartoons when I was a kid. And so they would have all kinds of different things. And The Honeymooners, even though it was only three seasons, was such an iconic show and it built so much. I mean, the basic cartoon, The Flintstones, is based on The Honeymooners. And uh, so many of the classic lines and Joyce Randolph to me was always a very iconic actress in that, in that part. And so we remember them all fondly with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. All right. We'll transition to best funniest lines. And I only have a few down it. It's not a, a particularly memorable quotes fest from this this movie but i have a few top one joe 
When a man's got money in his pocket, he begins to appreciate peace. Joe, I don't think it's nice you laughing. You see, my mule doesn't like people laughing. He gets that crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if you apologize, like I know you're going to, I might convince him that you really don't mean it. Joe, my mistake for coffins. Chico, our orders are to make sure he does not die, but also to make sure he regrets the day he was born. Marisol, why are you doing this for us? Joe, because I knew someone like you once and there was no one there to help. Now get moving. Joe, every town has a boss. Silvanito, yes, but when there are two around, I'd say there is one too many. Great business advice there. Juan de Dios, you'll get rich here or you'll be killed. Juan de Dios tolls the bill again. Joe, you shoot to kill. You better hit the heart. Your own words, Ramon. The heart, Ramon. Don't forget the heart. Aim for the heart or you'll never stop me. Joe, when a man with the forty-five meets a man with a rifle, you said the man with the pistol's a dead man. Let's see if that's true. Go ahead, load up and shoot. Joe, this is all very, very touching. Ramon, you mean you don't admire peace? It's not real easy to like something you know nothing about. I'm out. I'm out. I got one more. Silvanito, my roulette wheel. That too was murdered. No one ever comes here to play. We spend our time here between funerals and burials. All right. Let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Who would like to start? Let the, let the, let the challenges begin here. So legacy from an industry standpoint, I think is a clear five. Uh, I mean, I think that this is kind of on that. It's on that pedestal. You know, it's going to be referenced in film schools. It's going to be referenced uh, amongst famous directors. It's something that is going to be paid homage to. Uh, so I think that's an easy five from my standpoint. Now, the audience is tricky, and this kind of goes back to, uh, and, and I think maybe I have a question that I need to get firmed up here for this one. Now, are we talking about, like, the general pop, or are we talking about people who watch films? Because it's like, you know, this goes back to that Casablanca discussion you had and in, in your revisit of Casablanca. If you ask the average person on the street who doesn't watch movies about Casablanca, of course they're not going to know. But if you ask someone who watches films, Casablanca is royalty. So it's a little tricky. So what, what's your best? Give me, help me get in the right mindset on that. So the place that I've usually come down when we've had these discussions, the three of us would be part of the industry because we create content specifically designed at or around movies and their celebration, their promotion. So we're part of the cog or the machine of that all. But the average Joe that guests on a pod, I wouldn't say is the same. They're not the creators. They may sit around and, and do stuff, but even film just general fans. So I have a discussion group. I would say they're part of the normal population, but they have to also be included with everybody of the normal population. Like there are certain movies that are so iconic, the wizard of Oz that they, and, and, you know, if you've never, if you've only seen maybe 10 movies, that might be one of them. 
and it, it's so broad sweeping with the amount of people that have heard of it or know certain lines or it's seeped into the culture that it has an impact regardless of who it is you're probably talking to in, I would say, American culture. I, I, I hate to express the world at large, even though one of the biggest exports of the United States is culture, or at least has been to this point. So there are certain movies that have broadened out, like Star Wars, to a European audience has legs. Maybe not an Asian audience, because we hadn't culturally exported to those areas in the same way that I think more modern films probably have. But you can at least get a, a better understanding of the audience at large. Where I come down on the audience for this one, and I, I had us, I guess, sample or test the 20 or so, 20 to 25 people in our office on Monday for our staff meeting, as we mentioned on the Shane pod, which Unfortunately, when when you made a reference that Shane would be mentioned in the first five of everybody, Shane wasn't mentioned in the first 25 of anyone. Yeah. So I got a little pie. I got a little pie on my face from that one there. So yeah, I, un- unfortunately, I, I concede the uh, the that 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 battle. I, I think this, unfortunately, is one that is a recognizable name, but many details about it are going to be fuzzy Anybody outside of Clint Eastwood, no one's going to be able to name because there aren't any memorable actors that pop up anywhere else because he is the star and everybody else is uh, a European or Italian actor. So that prevents a little bit in contrast to at least the good, the bad and the ugly. You have three of them and you can say they're if especially if you're a, a film fan, you know, Lee Van Cleef or Eli Wallach, you could at least give multiple people that are in that film. It's not the same here. So I, I think that it it's going to unfortunately get a lower number than if it were just film fans. So here's where I'll go is because the Western genre is in itself is going to struggle in this type of category because I don't know how many how many Westerns, you know, outside of the, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly and maybe a few more that we named last time have are fully survived in the general population. I would say there's probably a short list of 10 that that transcend. And that's probably the max it is maybe 10. But I will say this, Clint Eastwood, and it's Clint Eastwood's first lead role. And Clint Eastwood is a household name. So the fact that it's his first lead role and he's a household name will be enough for me to float it with a three. And the, the presence of that final scene being in the Back to the Future movie, albeit the third one that you know people sleep on a little bit, it's still from this and has made its way into pop culture through that. So I feel good with a three there, a three and a five for an eight for me. Now, the one challenge that I had with this, because we primarily have, with exceptions, when we did a certain international film, such as we tried to look at either impact and significance or legacy, Three Idiots is a good example, or Your Name that we did, we measured it more on the audience it was intended for, which is the market it originally came out in, or if it had seeped into other similar markets in in Asia, because it wasn't necessarily an American film. Where I find this category particularly difficult is, and it probably is even more difficult in impact and significance, this movie didn't come out to an American audience until after GBU. And so while it is technically the first one, if you're going American-centric, as I know most of our audience or a vast majority of our audience is American, 
you know, does that make it a, a bigger difference? I think it has more to do with impact and significance than legacy. But how many people know the the true order of the Dollars Trilogy anyway? Yeah, but when we're talking legacy, though, even though it came out after, the performance evolved from this. So the legacy that was built in Good, Bad, and the Ugly, even though people, the public saw it first, it was it inherited into that legacy. So I, I'm good with my eight. I think that's where I'm, I'm staying on. Industry, I also have a five because it launched Eastwood's career. And when you look at the films he did in succession from about 1967 until about 1975, I mean, bing, 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 bing. He was hot. He was in high demand. At that point, he started doing some transitions and he did some of those I don't know, more questionable roles like Bronco Billy and Any Which Way But Loose and a few of those, but he was hot. So I'm going to give it a five. But for the public, you can mention the film and people have heard of it and they know Clint Eastwood's in it. They don't know who directed it. They may have seen it, but that's even limited. It is by far the the third child or the step poor stepchild of the trilogy that people don't know about or don't remember having seen or confuse it, where if people sat down and watched it, they'd go, I've seen this. Oh, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. No, 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 no. It's not. It's a separate film. And they don't get it. So I went with a 1.5. I'm at 6.5 overall. And Tom, before you go, I just want to throw out the top Clint gif is him tipping the cap, and that's from this movie, not from Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Search Clint Eastwood. It's the first one that comes, other than him angrily looking up from Gran Torino. But just throwing that out there. All right. I, I was afraid of this going as the last one. As I currently started out with, I had a 4.5 on the industry side of things. Partly, yes, it is, establishes Eastwood, and he has a long tail that drags this one forward. But as we mentioned, Leone's like career outside of the one movie in the 80s is limited to about a 10-year stretch where four of the movies are classics and memorable. This is the first of those four in succession. And you could argue that it's, it's among the best four that a director has consecutively made in a row ever. But at the same time, I don't know if... Leone and Morricone to non-film fans has the same pull as obviously Eastwood does. So does his star power alone and all of his career subsequent to that, because this, I guess, more or less started his stardom, gave him his opening to make that transition. Does that push it up to a five? I mean, I can be argued into it, but I had it at a, at a 4.5 right now. On the public side of it, I think you guys have already made most of the arguments. I only had a 1.5. I, I just don't see this as a high degree of name ID outside of, yeah, that was a Clint Eastwood movie. And because it has the name dollars in it, I think people can, or at least the general public, the majority of the general public, let's say, can associate this with the dollars trilogy or being a Western, et cetera, et cetera. So I give it a little bit of name ID to get it up to the 1.5, but that's about as high as I think I can go on an audience score. So right now I'd be sitting at a six. So does anyone want to try and bump me? 
since I am the low man. I mean, my if if I'm if I'm giving a final argument, I would just say it's the first creation of the character. The character is someone you could show a picture of from this movie, and they'll know exactly what it is. Now, will they say the title of the movie? They might say "Good and the Bad and the Ugly." Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. They might say that first because that movie's a little more popular, of course, but it blends off the legacy of the first one. So I just think showing like a still, like if I show someone a still from Stalag, they're going to go, you know, they may know William Holden. If I show them a still of Clint Eastwood's movie, they know exactly what it is. Can they pick out the movie from the trilogy? You know, that would maybe be the opposite argument. But, you know, I just, from that standpoint, I think it would, should deserve a little more than a 1.5. But that would kind of be my final take. Well, I thought you guys would argue more with my industry score. No, I have 4.55. It's a half a point, it's, yeah. whatever. Okay. Well, then I'll leave it for now. But so that's a 6.83 average between the three of us. Impact and significance. Dad, why don't you lead off? Well, from the industry, this started a whole succession of films. Eastwood did two more Leone films. He did Hang 'em High, another Western, same ilk, all within that five-year period. So I went with a 4.5. It's not perfect, but it allowed Leone to continue directing and producing and getting bigger budgets and, and building on that. For the public, it had a great run in Europe. But this was not a well-regarded film in the United States among the public. In fact, I looked it up. It was the 33rd highest grossing film of 1967. It just didn't do as well. So I went with a 2.0. And the only reason I gave it a higher than the 1.5 I gave for Legacy is because of its power or its um, box office overseas. Now, when we talk impact, it's within the five-year period, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah, and so this is a point that you brought up on your Good, the Bad, and the Ugly episode, Tom, um, and that's Dirty Harry. This leading into Dirty Harry is a pretty big impact. Now, this is where it's it's weird because the movie was made in 64 but kind of comes out in the U.S. in 66, 67, so the impact is a little bit delayed. So you could say, well, no, we're going impact from when they shoot the cameras. But if we're really talking about the impact it had on an American audience, I have to go from when the uh, the audience saw it. And from them seeing it in 67, that takes it right into 71, where we have Dirty Harry. There was some box office bustle with this thing. And it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't number one in the box office right away, but there was a word of mouth to it. And it did it did impact a bit within the audience, from my estimation there. Now, I know the critics didn't receive it well initially, but they quickly backpedaled. And this is kind of reminds me of like when Roger Ebert gave uh, Godfather 2 this horrible review because it was a sequel and cheesy sequel, da-da-da. And then years later, he puts it in his greatest movies of all time book. You know, so I think that just the, the fact that Soon after the credits backpedaled away, and then all of a sudden spaghetti westerns are now a thing. That's direct impact right there. From an industry standpoint, we throw spaghetti westerns into it. We throw uh, we throw the whole genre kind of reviving. I'm going with 
a 4.5 from an industry standpoint. The 0.5 gets knocked off because the initial critical reviews weren't quite there. And from a you know, from an audience standpoint, that the fact that they're now buying into Clint being the star that's gonna that's gonna carry domestic box offices for decades, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with the three. I'm gonna go with the three there too. I, I'd like to go to three point five, but I'm a little I'm a little I'm a little sheepish with that box office number. So so we'll we'll call it a three point five. We'll call it a three for a seven point five. Well. Moment of truth. I'll be honest. This is now the second time I've kind of regretted being the low man on this and, and starting to shift around. Partly because objection overruled, I uh, will allow Dirty Harry within the impact and significance. The argument is is cogent. Boy, you're you're, you're putting me putting me in a, a box here uh, of uh, great emotion. <laughs> I'm in a glass case of emotion. <sighs> I can look at it from either side of this one in where I think that the backpedaling didn't occur until subsequently after the initial five year period. Like obviously there's some reevaluation of these movies. I think they were deemed entertainment and schlock and, and particularly this one I think can be seen as less depth, but they were popular. They commanded attention. Obviously they were star making, so how much can you really give give down? I, I'm caught between two minds, one where I say I can dismiss this one and one where I can't. So maybe I, I split the difference a little bit and with the industry go with like a 3.5. And I guess the audience, I originally had this around like a two, but on the backing of the, the star making quality and how much... Clint was in demand by the time he makes Dirty Harry. And if we associate his prowess by that point, I'll make it another 3.5. So the math's easy and I'll, I'll go a seven, which will be the average then too. So you're already dragging us much higher than I thought we would go. My projection on this was it was going to be a relatively low on the list scoring movie, but we, we've already gotten much higher than I thought we would go. All right, I will bite the bullet and take the what I think is the hardest category right off the front. I will go and I will start novelty here. This is distinctly different, in my opinion, from Yojimbo. I know that there's controversy that it's supposedly ripped off. If you look at the first 20 minutes, almost down to a structural design and how it's set up, how the sets are designed how the costuming even is i mentioned the toothpick and that then being transferred in for like the cigar i think there's a look and a feel and a, a, a setup that is innately similar to yojimbo after about the first 20 minutes they diverge completely i find yojimbo to be comedic to have a much more lightened tone to be much less serious Clint plays this very grisly character who's very stern and stoic. And I think this is played in a more dramatic fashion by Leone. Whereas I think Mifune and Kurosawa give us a much more, I would say it's closer to like a, a Shakespeare comedy where you have one guy playing the two sides off against each other. And they're both somewhat buffoonish. Like none of the villains in Yojimbo to me, 
are menacing or fearful in the way that I thought like Ramon was in this film. So by contrast, and the fact that we don't have many of the same plot lines, several of the characters, while they're an archetype of what was established in Yojimbo, they're just very different. Like Selvanito is a very different character in Yojimbo than he is in this, in this film. How he's helped, the conclusion of the film. While again, it kind of brings in the broad structure, I can't say that I would have given this as many points down as I might have had I not gone and done the homework of watching Yojimbo. So while initially thinking about it, I, f I figured, okay, everybody knows that this is just a direct ripoff. Having now seen the film, the initial minus three that I would have given it off of my, like if, if we're doing the median point on novelty, I would say is, is just a straight five. That's your average movie. It's well executed, but not necessarily novel in any capacity. It's, uh, a cliche, but it's a, a fairly well done cliche. That's about middle of the road five for me. I would have said because this is a ripoff, so it's even less novel than it would otherwise be. I would have given off at least three points. I'm going to bring that up. I'm going to split the difference and say it's only off about 1.5 on that. But I also think the Leone movie is much better executed. I think the camera work is much crisper it's actually trying to do more with the visual storytelling elements of this. I think the the score is much better and much more suited to how I want this storyline to play out. So from an execution standpoint, I got to kind of give additional points beyond that, having seen the other one, because I kind of actually prefer this. Unlike when we did our compare and contrast a couple of seasons ago and we did Seven Samurai backed up by Magnificent Seven, I thought Seven Samurai was the much superior movie. I'm kind of of the other mind. I think Leone actually did a better job with the subject material and the premise than Kurosawa did, which is not something I would have thought I would say having really not experienced either film or not having remembered experiencing either film before this week. So if I add back in some of the execution points, let's say. I, I think stylistically, I'm willing to give it about an additional three. So if we take the one point off and then we add three back on, I'm at a 6.5. So use that how you will, gentlemen. Well, I mean, you've obviously covered a lot of ground there. I'll say, you know, it's such an odd property because it's a, it's a remake that's the first of a trilogy but it comes out after the first two of the trilogy came out. It is such an odd property. Well, it, and they're not exactly a trilogy other than they have yeah, the same it's a three loose pillars. Trilogy, right. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that they came out out of order makes it even more confusing. It, it might be the most influential remake of all time. You know, Ben-Hur, maybe. Ben-Hur probably is. Yeah, that's got to be in the conversation. I, I know there's a few different... Since we've had four iterations of A Star is Born, I mean... Okay. Yeah. Yep. I, yeah. Maybe that... So you'd say maybe the, the Judy Garland one? I don't know, because every generation seems to have their own spin on it, much like every great actor eventually has to do Hamlet. Um, <laughs> God. Oh, please, no. Don't invite me for the Hamlet episode, please. Uh, yeah, so it's it's super weird. I'll say the novel, the novelty of it is the score and the lead character. I got to knock off points for the fact that 
remaking the samurai film as a Western isn't that novel because you have the Magnificent Seven before. So I'm knocking off a little there. Ultimately, defer to that 6.5. I think that's fair. I might have said six, but I was a little annoyed at your 1.5 earlier. So I'm going to I'm going to go 6.5. We'll do that. Okay. well, this is a counterculture Western. There's only one other Western that was done before this was done. I don't care about the release date. I care about the direction and, and making of. The Searchers is the closest thing to a counterculture where John Wayne is kind of almost villainous because of his maniacal pursuit. That's the closest you come to a counterculture Western. High Noon? I couldn't find another one. High Noon would be what, what I would think, too. <sighs> but even then, that like uh, Gary Cooper is kind of a white hat in that. Yes. Yeah, but it is. is yeah. I don't know. It, it's different from the Westerns that were being told, but it's not in this same capacity. Like, I, I would definitely put a separation between those two, but that was the other one that I thought of. Okay, point taken. Yeah. So I, I have to give it higher scores for that. Okay, the fact that it was taken from a Japanese film and changed, I don't give it a lot of points down because, you know, yeah, it was done, but the way the material was handled was probably completely different, and how it was structured was different, etc. So I went a little bit higher than both of you. I went with a seven because it took a huge risk by by the way it was presented in this genre. You know, I think it took a little bit of balls from Leone to do it this way. I have a seven. That's a 6.67 average between the three of us. Classicness. Dad, I will offer this up to you to start. A lot of bloodshed, a lot of blood, a lot of shooting, a lot of that. Okay, it's the Wild West, so of course that's really what it was. I didn't see any reason to put it down too much for that. The way it handled women, they were subjugated, they were abused. That's the way it was in the Old West. I can't really say one way or the other, and so if we start with our classicness of being a seven and going up or down from that, I can't go up. I can't go down. So I'm going to go with a seven. I'm going to nitpick on only one thing. I think there's only one part of this that's ill classic. And if I'm going to pick on going back to our first episode, our first ever episode, and say that the melting faces at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark does not hold well over time, the finger painted blood that just does not like <laughs> look the right color does not hold up, but I'll, I'll only take a half point off for that. I still have two additional points because I, I feel this blooms classicness from how much influence and impact it's had among the people that have taken some of these artistry points. And, and even if you want to say, okay, this is the first one. This gives Leone the license to do a few dollars more good, the bad and the ugly once upon a time in the West. The collective nature of that, if you give him credit for it, then that goes on to inspire the Mexican standoff at the end of Reservoir Dogs or to give Peckinpah the final shootout at the end of The Wild Bunch or the final shootout at the end of Taxi Driver, for that matter. Certain close ups, the the camera work within this, the blended scoring 
I think that this actually adds a couple of points back if you even give it indirect the revitalization of the Western as somewhat of an anti-hero. I could actually put that if you don't have these movies and the revitalization of the Western, the star-making quality of Eastwood, you don't have Dirty Harry and you don't have Indiana Jones. So I think there's even an indirect case for why these have aged well and stay with us as quote-unquote classics. So I'm going to go for an 8.5. Okay, since I'm uh, I'm sitting here with a lawyer and a and a lawyer to be, uh, I'm going to channel my inner lawyer and 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 uh, refer to a an earlier court case, and that Ooh. would be uh, the G Mode episode on the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, you guys came up with a nine for that one. And I think one of the things that you looked at on that was is that the, there wasn't really a lot of women in it, and the ones that were were basically very diminutive. And this one's got a this one's got a girl boss in it. So the women are definitely more heavily represented here. I mean, one of them was, Dana, was your most charismatic. So they're definitely better represented in here. I don't see this as any more or less classic than the good and the bad, the ugly, outside of that, maybe that one point. Um, I think they fit right into the same groove. So I'm going to stick with what you guys came up with for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'll stick with that nine for this one, too, for this and the trilogy. Okay, your point about the female boss, I like. I'll actually raise... Mine from a 7 to a 7.5. So that's an 8.33 average between the three of us. Rewatchability. All right. The uh, are, are we using the Kieran test or are we using the piss test? We're not using any. We're, we're not using any of that other guys, you know. He's probably trademarked it by now. He's, he's yeah, proud of him. himself. Good for him. He could he could test his piss test in all the Marvel movies that he watches. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm actually I might surprise you a little bit on this one. I don't really find this one super rewatchable. I, you know, this one is kind of one of those, like I, I respect it and I view its importance and I view its responsibility in giving me one of my favorite movies in the good, the bad and the ugly. But this kind of plays like the vegetables you push around your plate a little bit. Like, you know, I, there's, there's times that this movie, I, I'm not having so much fun. I am checking my phone. I'm wondering how much, and it's not a long runtime. So, you know, as far as will I put it on? Yes, I will because I'll, coach myself into liking it more and more and realize the importance of it. It is, it's an academic type of film. It's one that's going to be brought up in film classes. It's one that Quentin Tarantino is going to yell at you about. And it's an important film if, if you care about the history of film. So I'll give it the, uh, the, the steady three on the, uh, will I put it on from time to time? Sure I will, but I'll have to be in the mood to do that. And there will be plenty of times where I'm not in the mood to watch this. Honestly, if it comes on, I can't guarantee you I keep it on. There might be times where it's like, I can't, I, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do Good, Bad, and the Ugly. You know, I'm going to take, rip out my 4K and throw that on and, and the, the three hours will go quicker than the, the two, the, you know, the shorter two hours in this one. So I'm going to give it a two from that standpoint. So we're going to call it a, a 50-55. You know, there's a, if I'm in the mood, I might. If I'm not, I'm certainly not. So it's going to be a five for rewatchability for me. It brought back a lot of memories of watching it years ago. And I enjoyed it, and it's a film that I will watch again. I don't know if I'll necessarily turn it off if I find it on. I may watch it for a while, depending, of course, on how far into the movie it is. I think the last half plays much more enjoyable and quicker than the the first half. The setup takes a while to unfold, but the ending has much more interest to me anyway. So I went with a six- 
Yeah, I also have a three for the likelihood that I would put it on. It's probably going to be for certain academic pursuits. I don't think this is one I would classify as putting on for fun. Like I, I started to think through what each individual number is. Five is going to be one of my favorites that I put on like when I'm feeling sick and I don't want to necessarily have to pay attention to something, but I know the beats of the movie so well that I could probably take a nap and it's not going to matter because I could pick it up 20 minutes from now. I could pick it up an hour from now and I'm not going to lose anything in the movie because I've just seen it so many times. Three is more of the category of this is important enough that I, I could see myself coming back to it six months, a year, two years from now and putting it on and saying, okay, yeah, I, I remember why this is important. I'm getting a little bit more out of this movie. Uh, I want to see what I can glean more from this. The leave it on, I think the runtime for me and the propulsive action, I think the further on in the movie you go, the better chance I'm going to have to leave it on. Because it's a shorter runtime and because I think once especially you get to about the barrel scene, you you kind of have a downward momentum or downhill momentum. I don't have as much problem leaving it on. If it's like really early on in the movie, like when he's first arriving to town, I think I'll I'll take a point or so off on that. But I could see myself very easily finding this on about two thirds of the way in or a third of the way in and not having a problem finishing the movie just about anything after the graveyard scene, which depending on which lighting you're seeing, I, that was the one that was the most confusing to me is I couldn't make out a lot of what was going on in that scene. And so you had to go online and read kind of the plot synopsis to understand everything that kind of happened in there. But anything after that, I, I find to be a very gravitational pulling scene for me. So I have a four on that for a seven overall, which makes the average a six. I got to throw out, I just want to throw out too, is that, you know, the fact that I saw this in theaters a month ago and then watched it for this here, if I was a little salty in my rewatchability, it might have been because to me, like if it were truly rewatchable, I'd be like pumped to fire it on again. And I was more like, oh, I just saw this a month ago. I guess, you know, here, here we go again. You know, so that I, I think that factored in. And I do want to say, Adam, I love you. I give the streaming circuit in the listenability category a 10. So there you go. But the town is not necessarily the most Boston movie of all time. No, I give that take a zero. It's not his fault. <laughs> it's not his fault. All right. Now, audience score on this one, we have an 87 for Google users and a 91% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.9. So to recap the categories, we had a 6.83 for Legacy, and a 7 for Impact and Significance, a 6.67 for Novelty, an 8.33 for classicness, a 6 for rewatchability, and an 8.9 for audience score. Now, I know we did this the last time, but do you remember what your highest scoring guest appearance has been so far? I think it was Lost in Translation. Do you have it? I, I don't have it in front of me this time around. I, that was more of my, uh, my numbers, my stats for the hat. You broke the top 90 or so with Shane the last time. Okay. Before that, Lost in Translation had come in at a 46 0.45 Shane is currently at a 47.96 and that's okay. in the top 75 or so films at the moment got it so, and AFI top 100 so I feel good about that and I think I said that yeah but I I, I actually like Lost in Translation better but I'm, I feel good about Shane being the top ranked one 
And remember, I do get some deep cuts around here. I choose the deep cuts. That's very correct. But I will agree with you. I, I Lost in Translations was one of those nice little surprise movies that I put it on the list because I felt I needed to get to it. And I was much more pleasantly surprised by that film than before. But if we're to take a bet, do you think this will be above Shane or below it? Coming into this, I would have said below it, but the way the numbers are shaken out, I don't know. I don't know how many possessions we're going to have to catch up here. I, I don't know. I think it might have broken Shane. And I'd feel okay about that if it did. I, you know, I might like Shane better, but I, I'm okay with it being a little higher if it did. Our final score is... A 43.73. Ooh, way off. Samsonite. That was way off. That's your Dumb and Dumber reference there. And it currently is one spot ahead of the Magnificent Seven. Oh, I like that, though. That's cool. That's a good... That's amazing. I mean, the two the, the two re- remakes of, of Kurosawa. That's that's phenomenal. I love it. What's, what's it just behind? Avatar. Ugh. The 2009 <laughs> James Cameron yeah. film. God, you guys, you guys suffered through that? Jeez. Oh, and I'm probably going to make him watch Avatar 2 yet. (sighs) Since he didn't see it the first time around. And Avatar is a remake of a Kevin Costner movie. (laughs) 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 Kind of like uh, James Cameron is kind of like the guy who started uh, Porta Potties. Makes a lot of money off of shit. (laughs) I like it. Uh, you won't be saying that once we get T2 in. That's that's the one Cameron movie that I, I will grant him. It, Where's everything the troll else... alarm? Where's that troll alarm again? You always got to bring up Terminator here when I'm on here because you know it's going to trigger me. I, I take that back. Aliens and T2. Those are the, the two Cameron movies that I, I really like. Yeah, okay. The original Terminator is one of the greatest films ever made behind Bronco Billy. If we want to talk about <laughs> bad makeup jobs and you know finger paint crap, the scene with Arnold trying to reapply his face is just god awful. Uh, I can only disagree. Then again, I'm also predisposed to not particularly care for, let's say, horror villains that just keep coming back. Fair enough. Does Jigsaw just keep coming back? Uh, I think you will find, and uh, listeners at home, we're foreshadowing our um, our Saw episode in the in the fall upcoming here and. Our Halloween episode. I think you'll find uh, Jigsaw to be a nuanced villain. Okay. But we'll see. I'm leaving it open-minded. I only know what has transcended into pop culture, and that's about it. So I'm letting that one be. That will probably be a one-time watch for me, and then we're going to be one and done. But that's about, you know, we'll give it service. We'll say we've seen it. We'll check it off our big list, and then we'll move on. The, the subtitle for that episode will be Kieran B. Wants to Play a Game. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and that's a movie I love where I do not suggest you you watch the sequels either because the sequels are definitely not, uh, not, not anything that should be considered for a platform on this podcast. There are plenty of franchises where we do the first movie and then we don't follow it up. I mean, after Terminator and Terminator 2, that's kind of that, that franchise too. Caddyshack 2. Caddyshack too. The worst piece of garbage. I mean, Jackie Mason. Ugh. Major League Two and Three. <laughs> I have a special place in my heart for Major League Two. 
it, two wasn't that bad, but three was horrible. Three is no, three is unwatchable. Three reminds me of uh, when they used to do all those Disney films that would be like straight to video release or straight to VHS, like the the subsequent sequels of Aladdin or The Lion King or whatever, Return of Jafar or whatever the hell it was. It wouldn't get a, a movie theater release because they weren't investing that much money, but they were hoping that kids would still like them none the same. Kind of like my big Greek or my big fat Greek wedding three which was basically filming them having a, a uh, cast reunion in Greece. I mean, if somebody's willing to pay you to do that, yeah, go ahead. I, I have no problem with it. It's like Adam Sandler trying to film all of his movies in like tropical locations anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's that was the origin of, of Fistful of Dollars. Clint says, ah, this movie will probably stink, but at least I get a vacation in Europe. That's it right there. That, that spawned it all. Brought, bringing it back home. So if you disagree with any of our scores, you can write us at at Gmote podcast on Letterboxd, YouTube, X, trying to think of all of them here, Instagram, and uh, I think I mentioned TikTok. Uh, Oh, and X, if I didn't say that one. I think there's like the the five pillars of uh, social media that we (laughs) try not to engage with, but still have to be on it. But yes, you can hate mail us at one of those. We do occasionally respond to our direct messages, although I can't promise that it won't be our Scooby-Doo villain that will get to it before I do. (laughs) Let's find out who he really is. (laughs) (laughs) Giving Dana some Scooby snacks here on the side. Remaining questions. So the Baxter house never actually catches on fire. It's still standing in the last scene. It has like some black marks, but it's basically burning in the yard. So how is there smoke in the house? Why did they come out of cover? It doesn't really make sense. Okay. Yeah, I have nothing else to say, but okay. It's more a nitpick than it is a question per se. I don't have your your musical cue here, but we'll, we'll go with that one. How does Joe get the giant barrel up on the ramp when he can barely crawl? I love this one. This is great. I didn't think of it till till I saw it in your in your prep. But I do have an answer. Donkey Kong's up there. <laughs> and he's rolling <laughs> barrels down the That's an N E S. Yeah. That's an N E S reference for all, all you kids at home there. Yeah, the, the original uh, appearance of Mario in the game Donkey Kong. My other question with that is is again, can barely crawl. He is getting up onto a cart. And then over the lip of a coffin that is probably three feet off the ground. Like, how is he supporting himself to get into the coffin and then do it without anyone noticing? If you're crawling, you're going to tip over that coffin, guaranteed. And then it's going to make a lot of ruckus and you're going to get caught. He's the man with no name who has a name, you know, what he can do all. Okay. And the unanswerable question, but how long do you think it took joe to recover from his beating three four weeks you think it was only three or four weeks yeah because i think the timeline would lead you to believe since they're torturing sylvanito that it's probably sooner than that because i would have thought they would have killed that guy a long time before the end of the film if you're doing it three or four weeks out okay i understand I don't know. It, it's just not really clear. That's why it's unanswerable. But 
Yeah, I have I have one too. This drives me nuts with this one. And you did a little. Uh, you said you did a little Wikipedia research here, so maybe you do have the answer. So those so those two dead guys are propped up as guys who are hiding out in the cemetery, but they don't react to any of the gunfire that's going on around them. They're just they're just having a nap while all this is going on. And the guys who were <laughs> shooting at them are like, "All right, we got to take these two guys out." Like, why would why are they not asking the question? Like, wait a minute, why aren't they moving? Why aren't they even reacting to the gunfire. I mean, if you're if you're taking a nap and someone just shouts loudly, you'd look up and go, "What's going on over there?" Let alone gunfire from both sides. I I just don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand it. I think they're really dumb. Fog of war, I guess. I... Yeah, I think that would be the easiest explanation for it. Was is that you invite them both out there for alternative causes and. Yes, that's the catalyst for them being out there in the first place, but they're never going to get close enough to really identify or see much. It's dark, and then they start shooting at each other and forget about the bodies that maybe that takes care of it, but it's taking an awful risk on the part of Joe that that's your plan. Well, yeah. we see we see later on in the movie, he takes the risk that the guy's not going to shoot him in the head. Even after he's using the chest like seven times and he doesn't doesn't do anything, but at least cap him in the knee or something. Yeah, I, I can't quite get past that one. I have one. This is in the Southwest. It's hot. It's sunny. It's arid. Why the fuck are you wearing a raincoat and a poncho? <laughs> what, you want to sweat more? Uh, <laughs> sure, it looks cool, but who does that? The cost of iconography. If I were to explain it at all, is that the desert can get very cold at night. And so you're taking those with you for the eventuality that you'll need them in a like camping out. But I don't know why you can't just like roll up the blanket and put it in your, one of your saddlebags. Yeah. But it does look cool. So let's talk about a more logically sound movie in The Rookie. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> I was building up to this, but for those of uh, you in the audience that are more consistent listeners, our, let's say, followers, our subscribers, those that subject themselves to the weekly torture that is Gmote, you will remember back a few weeks to the, it, it was either the Shane or the Stalag 17 episode. Was it, it was Shane? Shane. Okay, yeah, I, can't, I couldn't remember because both of those were within like two or three weeks of each other. But right as that episode was being recorded and... Boy, the timing was bad on that one. The Giants, the New York football Giants, played the Green Bay Packers. Now, as two of us, the co-hosts of this particular program, are known to be world-famous Packer owners, and the other one is a uh, New York football Giants fan. Lifelong, true blue. We had a bad movie bet. And despite... Dana's rather boastful confidence that yes. the Giants had no chance in that game and that Kieran could keep his money for the rental of watching the rookie. The Green Bay Packers shat the bed. What a game. Yeah, well, Tommy DeVito will never play another down in the NFL at this point, and the Green Bay Packers made him look like a Hall of Famer. Well, that's because Thank our you, defensive Joe coordinator, yeah. Tommy DeVito will forever go down in the annals of my sports fandom as the man who prevented me 
from watching Kevin Connolly's Gotti. And I will always remember him for that. And I will always love him for that. And if he never takes another snap again, he will always have a place in my heart because of that. How, how do you even follow up something like that? I, I, I would say Tommy DeVito now lives in the New York sports fandom, much in the same way Jeremy Lin does. Yes, That's he has a that very that, fair comparison. That yes. meteoric rise and fall. To be fair, Lynn had a playoff team, though, so he would. Lynn did. Lynn accomplished a bit more, uh, but that is that is a that is a potent analogy, my friend. But either way, we all subjected ourselves, one voluntarily, and the other two of us kicking and screaming, to Clint Eastwood's masterpiece, The Rookie. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> the film, the film that preceded Unforgiven, by the way. <laughs> I have to say, having watched this turd. There are four <laughs> third acts. The third act starts with 55 minutes gone in the film, and there's two hours. I don't know why Clint is captured for almost half of this movie and then has an erotic scene with the Ugh. villainess out of well, I, nowhere. I, I warned you about that. <laughs> the Clint Eastwood reverse rape. Yeah. Um, yikes. I... I so that was my takeaway from the first time. I was scarred from watching it the first time. And then I was ready for it this time. And I was watching and verbally said, what the fuck is happening <laughs> okay. right now? Yes, I said that as well. <sighs> Three times. Yikes. If uh, I had I, to watch that thing straight through, I don't know if I would have gotten all the way through. But literally, there were parts of the movie where I think three separate times in the second hour of the film which is already 40 minutes too long dana correctly predicted the cliche of what was about to happen oh charlie sheen is he gonna like drive right through the front door <laughs> i mean talk about illogical cinema insanity like what if like that happened to be an hour before before she figured out that it was the cop he just goes rolling through the door like Peter Griffin, you know, like, <laughs> what? he just happens to know that they're in the middle of a conflict. Oh, my God. So insane. How about Clint interrogating a guy with a uh, magnetic lift at a junkyard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I, oh. All of a sudden, the guy who is brought in who either looks Italian or Hispanic, but somehow he's German. <laughs> what the Ruffle fuck? Julia. <laughs> yeah. like, why was... why is he the one playing that part oh my god uh, I, mean, I mean every he's, one it's... of his henchmen and yeah. the bar that his henchmen hang out in is hispanic but he has a german accent for no good reason hey uh i mean you know is this you like get... a diehard hangover <laughs> You get Raul Raul Julia in essentially in whiteface. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't put a blonde wig on him and make him wear blue eye contacts. Oh man, and dies on a on an airport uh, luggage carousel. Oh, that reminded me so much of like Heat. Oh, uh, they're running through LAX and the field and the airplanes chasing him. I'm like, oh yeah, now we're gonna get to it. Oh, there have been a few flights I felt like dying on a, on a luggage retrieval rack. Oh, my God. Listen, it's, <sighs> I mean, so there are, so I believe there are 39 Clint Eastwood films, directed films, 
and I have seen them all and ranked them all. And I believe I have this one in at, at either 30 or 31. So there are potentially six <laughs> worse films. He directed this on top of yes, it? he directed it too, which oh, is God. amazing. Boy, yeah, so like, he's, his directorial skills <laughs> declined significantly, <laughs> in my opinion, now. His, his next film, he wins the Oscar. That's the best part. But, so, it, I mean, the reason why I haven't ranked as high as it is because it's so insane and it's it's laugh out loud funny at points for me. And at least I have fun watching it. Whereas, you know, Jay Edgar, there's no fun in Jay, in Jay Edgar. There's no oh. fun in the 1517 to Paris, which is my, le- my last ranked one. Uh, that's just bad. I think that this movie is at least so insane. And there are rumors that he intentionally made it bad to screw with the studios because he had one last uh, commitment to them. And they basically like handcuffed him into into making it. Charlie Sheen is so bad. He's so bad in this. I mean, and Raul Julia is a great actor, too. <laughs> He's given negative content to work with here. I remembered, by the way, it's Roberta Vasquez. That's the actress who was Charlie Sheen's partner at the very end of the film. She was a Playboy centerfold in 1983. And we're just going to tack her on at the end of this. Yep. Yeah, to bring it full circle for the new rookie. Well, of course. For, for the sequel that never happened. Oh, God. <laughs> but I, I'm serious. This This thing started to get into its third act before the second hour had begun. And then it had like four endings and it just kept going and going and going. And I don't understand it. Like this is, it has to be one of the worst edited movies I think I've ever seen. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's one oh one for movies that are two hours that have absolutely no business being two hours, but nothing will top the absolutely psychotic moment of Clint Eastwood getting raped and her saying to him, you better keep it up. (laughs) But but the part that I'm like, okay, yes, this is obviously supposed to be something, but she never opens his pants. Oh my God. I mean, like, I I mean, if we're going to show off her sucking on Clint's nipples, at least show some Clint dick. Oh man! Uh, <laughs> and then uh, they film it, and later on, Charlie Sheen throws it on, and he's like, "Yeah, you horn dog." <laughs> hey, I was watching that. <laughs> oh my oh. god! So yeah, I mean, the the you know the the sentiment behind our laughter is why it it, it went up eight uh, spots in the, in the Clint rankings there. Oh yeah, jeez. Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a movie. He was nominated for a directorial Golden Globe behind it in Bird, just because it's not fun. But yeah, eh, the rookie go out, and we're not talking about Disney's The Rookie. No, not the Devil no. Ray movie. We're talking about 1990s The Rookie, starring Clint Eastwood and Charlie Sheen. And and we're not Raul talking Jean. about the uh, more modern TV series on Fox either with Nathan Fillion. Nope, we're we're talking about the one that nobody can find unless you specifically go looking for it. And poor Tom Skerritt, he's got to be wondering, you know, I've done so many different quality things. Was I just looking for a fucking paycheck? Uh, yeah, this is this is hope, hopeful paychecks all around. I I, <laughs> I think they I think it cost them all money. <laughs> I think looking for a paycheck movie has to have like a name. Is it the Nicolas Cage movie? 
<laughs> yeah, this this one was more of a contractual obligation movie, but you know, we got to see Charlie Sheen burn down a bar, you know, so that's Yeah. <laughs> and of course the thing ends with no ramifications for any of that. Nah. Nah. No I mean, injuries. It sounds from like driving. it's the Minneapolis Police Department. No injuries from driving God a, a <laughs> No injuries from driving a motorcycle full speed through a house either, you know. Or a car <laughs> off a building without a helmet. <laughs> the, car, the car off the exploding building <laughs> with with no top on it. It's a convertible. Oh man. Yeah. Have have some, read read Siskel and Ebert's review of this one. It's a it's a blast. <laughs> Does Quentin Tarantino ever have anything to say on it? I, I no. He did he did review Firefox though, which I have ranked lower than this though. I I it's it, it, the Siskel and Ebert. Ebert's like kind of trying to be nice, and then and then Siskel just buries them both. He buries, he buries Ebert and the movie. He's like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Oh boy. <sighs> So we don't All get right. two thumbs up here. We got two thumbs down from you guys. No. <laughs> I'm happily... My thumbs are limp on this. What's the rewatchability score on that one? Uh, <laughs> zero. zero. Ah. Damn. I, I will never put this on again. <laughs> oh. What a shame. I take that back. I'll go a point five. Okay. If it's on, I may call somebody in from the house and go, hey, you want to watch this piece of shit for five that minutes? That matters. That matters. Okay. But we had to go out of our way to find it and rent it. Where is anyone going to just matter of factly have this on? It's not like it's going to be on TNT next weekend. It's not going to bump Shawshank Redemption. It's frankly amazing it's available. Yeah, probably be in the dollar bin at Walmart. <laughs> you mean they pay you a dollar to take it? <laughs> uh, I'll take that point five and run. Uh, all right. Well, thank you very much, my friend, for being on. I know that uh, this is one of a many uh, handful of podcasts you're doing, not only this week, but this season with us. So we appreciate your time and taking almost three hours to spend with us. Starting to feel like a BPC every time you're here. I know but, I'm uh, contagious. It's like a like a disease. No, uh, thank you guys for having me. I always love these are always uh, these are always some of my favorite recordings. I always have a blast here with the format and with the. Um, <laughs> there's times where I'm thinking uh, this this episode is a perfect example. Of times where I'm thinking really hard and really analytically, and other times I'm. <laughs> Trying to appropriately react to you talking about someone sucking Clint's nipples. <laughs> okay, so so in the same episode, we we have subsequently covered Chef Boyardee. Thank you, Dad. And a reverse rape. Where's someone sucking on Clint's nipples? You can't make this shit up. And threatening him to keep his erection with a razor blade, too, by the way. <laughs> oh, my oh. God. What goes on? What goes on? <laughs> so I can't think of too better place to stop it for this week. <laughs> Hopefully you'll be back next week. But before we do, Kieran, where can anybody find your work? You can find me at Best Picture Cast uh, on all the socials at Best Picture Cast. Come check us out. We cover every Best Picture winner in in whatever order we choose. 
And, um, you know, we, we do some other random movies too. We haven't done the rookie quite yet, but maybe we have to <laughs> have to make that happen. I don't know. But um, yes, the, the check us out. Best picture cast wherever you get your podcasts. All right. That'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Next week, for our 198th episode, we stay in the year 1964, but discuss another Stanley Kubrick classic with Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, with Terry Southern and Peter George. Music by Laurie Johnson, starring Peter Sellers, Sterling Hayden, and George C. Scott, and Slim Pickens. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewrinydunkinstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ryan Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. Oh, that was amazing. <laughs>